You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. It's good to be with you this morning. Open your Bibles if you have them to Acts chapter 13. Uh, Excited to begin this new series with you probably the next five or six weeks. We'll see. We're going to be looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul through the the different uh, stories in the book of Acts. I read an article this week that examined the current state of global missions, and it really demonstrated that over the last couple of decades... There have been some major shifts that have happened uh, just in the makeup of global missions and really in the makeup of global Christianity as a whole. Let me give you a few examples. So uh, Christianity Today reported that 85% of the members of Yale University's Campus Crusade for Christ are Asian, whereas the university's Buddhist meditation meetings are almost exclusively attended by white people. That is an interesting um, switch. Uh, The World Christian Encyclopedia recorded that there are, this is interesting, more Anglican Christians worshiping in Nigeria on any given week than all of the Episcopal and Anglican churches of Europe and North America combined. More in Nigeria than all of North America and Europe combined. China can now boast uh, of the fastest growing church in the world with an estimated 16,500 new Christians every day. Remarkable. Uh, It says that there are nearly uh, half a billion Christians today who are crossing cultural boundaries with the gospel from the majority world. So people from the majority world are going into, they're doing doing the Great Commission work. Uh, This was fascinating as well. Each week, 15,000 missionaries, mostly from Africa and Asia, are evangelizing communities in Great Britain. So the trends are showing, listen to this, if anything, that growth across the global church is not consistent. Places that have historically been Christianized, the West, if you want to think of it that way, are uh, categorically in decline. And by contrast, there is uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of growth in areas that typically have a high amount of persecution and low wealth, low material wealth. The church is booming in these areas. Missions matter. Missions matter a great deal. In fact, let me give you a truth. Missions matter because the Great Commission matters. Missions matter because the Great Commission matters. Jesus commanded us, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But listen, in order to do that, in order to make disciples of every nation, it requires us to go into those nations first. Thus, missions matter. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this series. The goal of the series is really pretty simple. It is to develop a better biblical understanding of what missions mean. What what do we mean when we say the word missions? It's one of those words that I think gets thrown around a lot in church and it can mean all kinds of things. It can mean all kinds of things. Uh, Sometimes it means mission trips right? Mission trips, either going locally, stateside, or uh, globally, internationally to another country. We just had a trip to Puerto Rico uh, last month. We took some high schoolers on a mission trip in conjunction with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. We are, uh, surprise, uh, Baptists. We're just not mad about it. Uh, We went and served in Puerto Rico. That qualifies as missions in most churches. 
Sometimes when you hear the word missions, what churches mean by that really is evangelism, sharing your faith with someone, sharing uh, your faith either uh, in another country again or uh, in your school or at, at your job, at your place of work. Sometimes it's just a synonym for being evangelistic. Sometimes missions in certain churches, what they mean by that is inviting someone to an evangelistic event. So VBS, trunk or treat, uh, some kind of special service. Uh, when, when the term missions is used in those contexts, it, it really doesn't mean doing missions as much as it means inviting someone to an event that is evangelistic in nature. There's lots of ways that mission uh, is used, the term is used, uh, and it changes depending on the context you're in and the church that you're located at. But we, at City on a Hill, we strive to be people of the book, don't we? We don't ever want our ideas concerning church or something like missions to be defined by our context or by pragmatism. We always want to use scripture. We always want to look to the word of God to define these important terms. What does the Bible say about missions? What is the biblical message of missions? When we examine Paul, for example, and other disciples who go on mission trips, what details does the Bible give us concerning those mission trips? Like, for example, how did they decide who went on missions? How do, they, how do they figure that out? How did they decide where to go? Once they, once they had their people, once they had their missionaries, now what do we do? Where do we go? And once they got there, how did they decide what they needed to do there? These are the questions that I am going to be asking today. And I find the answers, I believe, in Acts chapter 13. So if you haven't already turned there, Acts 13 is the address you need for this morning. We're going to be hanging out there the whole morning. I want to situate you to what is happening in the context of Acts as a whole, um, because it's always important to start with context. So uh, in Acts chapter 8, really important chapter for the book of Acts, because it, Acts is divided into different categories. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives the um, kind of a, an, a different commission in Acts than the one that we find in Matthew and the Gospels, where he says um, that you will be my witnesses. You're to go, you're to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, or the ends of the world. Acts is divided into those three categories. It begins in Acts 1 through 7 in Jerusalem. Beginning in chapter 8, the Judea-Samaria portion begins. And then when we get to the missionary journeys of 13, that's really when the ends of the earth begin to come into play. And Acts 8, it's important because this is when they move into Judea. And they move into Judea because of great persecution that breaks out in Jerusalem. Things get very difficult for Christians very quickly. Uh, a spark was ignited by Saul before he came to Christ. And once that per persecution started, it was like a roaring fire that could not be put out. It, it didn't slow down. Because of this persecution, Christians scatter out of Jerusalem into Judea, specifically into a, a city called Antioch. And, and as the church in Jerusalem begins to dwindle down because of this overwhelming persecution, the church in Antioch explodes. Great leaders are raised up there. Great missionary work starts there. After some time passes, things get so bad in Jerusalem that the church in Antioch actually uh, pulls together an offering from other churches and sends two individuals to go back to Jerusalem to give this offering to the church there so that they can survive. And they send Paul and Barnabas to make that offering, which is kind of ironic. Paul's the one that sort of started the fire. He leaves and they're like, you're going back, right? Our passage in Acts 13, just to situate you in the context, begins 
right when Paul and Barnabas return from Jerusalem back to Antioch. They've just given the offering and they're coming back now to Antioch. Acts chapter 12 verse 25 says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Paul and Barnabas return, they make the offering, they celebrate with the people in Jerusalem, they come back to Antioch, they bring with them Mark, who is John Mark. We know him, a uh, very prominent figure in the Bible. And that brings us to Acts 13.1. And this is a really amazing picture of the church in Antioch that, that I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about. Look at verse 1. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So pause for a moment before we jump into the actual meat of the material. I want you to notice the descriptions of these individuals because this says something about the diversity of leadership in Antioch, which is just a really beautiful picture of what I believe the church is supposed to look like. Notice that it's the teachers and the prophets who are gathered here. So this, this is the leadership. These are not just members. These are leaders in the church. And look at the names and the descriptions. So first we get Barnabas. And, and book-ended in this list, we get Saul, okay? And, and we have no descriptions given for them because we already know these guys. Uh, we've already been introduced to them in the narrative of Acts. We know a lot about Paul, the Damascus Road conversion uh, in, in Acts, uh, what is it, 9. Uh, he's from Tarsus. Uh, he is a Hebrew-speaking Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin, and he is a Pharisee, right? Classic, high-performing Jewish man. Uh, we've already been introduced to Barnabas as well. Acts 4.36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. So again, Barnabas, Jewish man, a Levite. Paul's from Benjamin. Uh, 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 Barnabas is from the tribe of Levi. And he is a native of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is an island in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. So get this, that both of them are Jewish men, but one of them, Paul, is primarily a Hebrew-speaking Jewish person uh, who was a Pharisee. Barnabas is primarily a Greek-speaking Jewish person from the Mediterranean area. So they have a lot in common, but there's also some differences as well, culturally, language, so on and so forth. They both likely spoke Hebrew and Greek together, but one probably preferred the other over the other and uh, vice versa. The second person we get is Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, Simeon was likely an African Christian. Niger is the Latin word for black or a dark-complected person. Uh, the name probably is derived from the river that runs through Nigeria, the Niger River. Uh, and that is all we know of this man, is that he was likely an African Christian. We get Lucius of Cyrene, another African Christian. Cyrene is in the northern part of Africa. Uh, there was actually a Jewish contingency that came from North Africa into uh, uh, Jerusalem. They're described in Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, scholars think that Lucius might have been a part of that Jewish group that was converted uh, under the ministry of the church in Jerusalem and then relocated to Antioch after persecution broke away. And then we get Menane, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That term in Greek, uh, lifelong friend, it means something like to be brought up together. So it, it indicates the idea that Menane and Herod the Tetrarch were raised in the same household. Now Herod the Tetrarch, uh, Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod I, who was reigning over Galilee when John the Baptist and Jesus were doing their earthly ministry. We learn of them in the Gospels. So get the picture of the leadership here. This is really impressive. 
You have two Jewish men, one Greek-speaking, one Hebrew-speaking. You have two men from different parts of Africa, and you have one Hellenized Christian who grew up in a royal home. And there, there are multiple cultures, there's multiple languages, there's multiple perspectives here, but all of them are Christ followers. All of them are yielded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the church should look like. A picture of, of beautiful diversity, but under the umbrella, not of one culture or language, but of Christ. Look at the, it's the picture of Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Paul wrote, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church in Antioch embodied this. Beautiful picture. Look at verse two. This is what they're doing. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the first thing that we notice in this passage, when we talk about the word missions, is that missions are directed by concentrated prayer. Missions are directed by concentrated prayer. Often when we think about uh, missionary efforts, mission trips, it's all about planning, isn't it? We like to compile data. We like to see who the different people groups are on a map. Give me a world map so I can kind of see where I'm going. I think of William Carey, the great uh, father of modern missions, right? He had a huge map in his study. Uh, we like to know what their languages are. What are we walking into? Can we communicate with the people we're going to? Uh, we like to know what kind of culture they live in. You know, what is their thoughts about the world and outsiders and so on and so forth? We like to know what their beliefs are. Uh, what are, what are the, the native beliefs to the area that we are going to? Beyond that, we like to see qualified missionaries go on mission trips, don't we? Long-term missions. We want to see them qualified. You need to have a master of divinity with an emphasis in missions, right? Either that or in the cases like uh, the Hannah family or the Richard family, two families that we support here at City on a Hill, uh, you need to have advanced linguistic degrees because their job uh, entails translating the Bible into whatever language they are, uh, whatever culture they're in. And all that stuff is fine. There is a use for that. Planning is good. Hear me when I say that. Planning is good, right? But let me give you a truth. Mission work should always be directed by prayer, not planning. It should always be directed by prayer and not planning. Notice that over and above planning, Antioch was all about praying and listening for the direction of the Holy Spirit. They were worshiping, they were fasting, something we rarely talk about in the modern church, and they sensed that the Lord had set apart Paul and Barnabas. And then look at verse three. It says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I mean, it was just that simple. Well, hey, we believe the Lord is sending you guys. We're going to pray over you. Now go. We're, we're in support of you, praying. Go get them, right? There's no, there's no internal discussion amongst the leadership. There was no like, hey, hold on a minute. Do we really think it's a good idea to send both Paul and Barnabas? I mean, they're kind of rock stars around here. Are we sure we want to see them both go? It'd be a loss for our church in Antioch if we lose them. Both of them could easily be campus pastors before too long. You know, we don't, I don't know that we, does the Lord really need both? I mean, can we not send like Paul and then maybe like someone else and keep Barnabas here? You know, there was none of that. You know what that's called, by the way? That's called getting in the way of the Holy Spirit. He is in charge, not us. If he says go, you go. If he says stay, 
you stay. If he says go to seminary, you go to seminary. If he says go into the workforce, you go into the workforce. If he says quit your job and become a social media influencer, he probably didn't say that to you, so you need to get wise counsel, right? <laughs> but you get my point. The Holy Spirit is the director of missions. He's the one that decides where you go. He's the one that decides who goes there. And verse four reflects that. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they, they sailed to Cyprus. By the way, who's from Cyprus? Barnabas. So they're going to a place where someone there has a connection there. So there is, you can see there is a little bit of planning involved here, right? I mean, Barnabas, Barnabas was part of a strategy. He knew the area. He was raised there. He's from there. But he was sent by the Holy Spirit, not by planning and organization. And, and, and it, it's the Spirit who actually is the one that not only selects them, but commissions them to go. The church in Antioch had nothing to do with this except for simply recognizing what the Lord was doing and being in line with it. That was it. Not getting in the way. Listen, I'm not saying that planning is bad. I, I want you to hear that. Planning and preparing for ministry is good. Uh, you should plan and you should prepare for ministry. It's good. It's an overwhelmingly good thing. But understand it's not the final thing. It's not the ultimate deciding factor. Proverbs 16:9. the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can plan for these things, but the Lord must establish them. Missions, ministry, they are a calling of God, not a science. It's not something that as long as you do your part, you get all your ducks in a row, it's all going to work out. It doesn't work that way. It's not how it works. The Lord must establish the steps of that individual. He must be the one who determines who goes and where they go and what they do when they get there. It doesn't work any other way. Some of you right now, and you're not even maybe aware of it. Some of you are, some of you are not. But some of you are called to the mission field. You're called to the mission field. And some of you are called to ministry. And so you need to plan. And you need to prepare yourself. Go to school. Educate yourself in your field that you believe God is calling you to. Learn the discipline that's going to be necessary to do what you feel like God has put on your heart to do. Be ready for wherever you believe God is leading you. But understand this. Just because you plan and prepare, it does not mean it all works out. It only works when the Spirit directs. Missions must be directed by concentrated prayer. Not only that, but number two, missions are carried out by confident preaching. Look at verse five. It says, when they arrived at Salamis, we'll call it Salamis because I'm kind of hungry right now. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. So you remember when they came back from Jerusalem to Antioch, they had John Mark with them. Apparently, he went along with them as sort of a helper, just to kind of do, assist, and whatever they needed help with. And notice what they're doing. It says they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. Now, this is an important distinction that we have got to get right if we're going to get missions right. Because this really clarifies what missionaries are intended to do when they are on mission. Hear me when I say this very clearly. The goal of missions is the gospel. It's the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Now, don't let the word preaching freak you out, okay? I don't necessarily mean what I'm doing now. Our idea of preaching is far more formal than it was in a New Testament setting. Uh, there are actually a few words in the New Testament in Greek that we translate as preaching, and they're all a little bit different, but they all kind of more or less signify the same thing. Uh, so here in this passage, we get katangelo, uh, a word that means simply to announce or proclaim. 
Okay, uh, an announcement, a proclamation. Uh, overwhelmingly, you get the Greek word keruso, uh, which again means to publish or herald or proclaim, to make a, an official announcement. Sometimes you get euangelizo, uh, which is uh, 1 Peter 4, 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached, euangelizo, it's uh, to address someone with good tidings. So it's the idea of preaching the good news, right? Proclaiming the good news. All of these words convey an idea that is more or less the same, which is simply proclaiming the truth of the gospel, announcing the gospel, right? What does it mean to proclaim something? I mean, our English definition is simply to announce something officially or publicly, to make a public or an official announcement of something. That is the goal or the aim of missions, to announce the gospel. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? Why do mission trips in a modern sense often emphasize serving over preaching? Why do we do that? And there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, the way missions work for us in our context, when we do what we did with Puerto Rico through the SBC, is uh, it, we consider it cooperative missions, meaning that we do missionary work from our church to another church. Okay, Compassion has the same model as well, where you are uh, ministering to a church that is actually doing the gospel uh, ministry in their community. This is for short-term missions. This is why we do this. So in Puerto Rico, for example, uh, when they went there, they served the church. They helped build, they helped uh, facilitate, clean, do things that the church needed to do so that they could be freed up to do the actual gospel ministry of winning people to Christ. That's the goal. You're only there for a week. It doesn't make sense to try to build things from the ground up, right? So when a church goes on short-term mission, it's to develop the people in the church for an idea or, or a, a capacity for maybe more long-term missions or leadership in a ministry, ministerial structure later in life. It, it, it is a, an edifying, it is a building up experience and it is helping a church in that context who's gonna be there next week and the week after that and the week after that do what they need to do to be a church there. So they're not only doing gospel ministry, uh, they're caring for orphans and widows, they're ministering to and teaching and equipping Christians in Puerto Rico, so they need help. So churches like ours, when we can only be there for a week, we go there, we partner with them, we help them to enable them to be able to continue to do what they need to do long-term. Now let me say this, that doesn't mean that while we're on short-term mission trips, we shouldn't share the gospel. You should always share the gospel everywhere you go. There's no limit to this. There's no like, well, knocked out my time for the, it doesn't end, right? When I was in England, we were there studying for academia. We spent a day in Islington, in the city, on the streets, walking around, sharing the gospel with people. And it is hard, not fertile ground there. And we did it, and it was, it was so invigorating, and it was so incredible, and we prayed with a couple of people. It, it was an amazing experience. When I split my chin open in Arkansas at a youth camp and had to drive an hour into town while I was laying on the table and the nurse practitioner was sewing me up, I was like, where do you go to church? Oh, yeah? <laughs> she, was like, she was like, so what, what are, you, are you like a, like a youth guy or something? I was like, no, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church, but I'm, I'm here preaching a youth. I said, so, so why don't you go to church? What's the deal? You know, and we had a whole conversation about it. She's got four kids, her husband's in finance. They haven't been to church in a long time. I was like, hey, do me a favor. Remember the weird guy that you had to like sew up, right? When you wake up on Sunday, look up a church and go to church, go worship somewhere. 
Jesus loves you. You need to know that. Jesus, like there's no end to where you can share the gospel. You should always be thinking about preaching the gospel. That's what it is. It's not getting up on a stage with a microphone and, and, and teaching in this formal sense. It's just proclaiming the gospel. And you can do it almost anywhere. And I say almost anywhere, there just needs to be people there, right? But get this, proclaiming the gospel is the point of missions. That's the goal. That's the aim. So if you attend, this is what I mean by this. If you attend a church or a ministry that is doing missions, and by that they mean mowing lawns or inviting people to trunk or treat or egg hunts, that's not mission work. That's acts of service. Inviting them to an event where missions might happen, that's not missions. That's acts of service. It's not in and of itself a missionary effort. It's a good thing. You should do that. Mowing your neighbor's lawn talking to them, inviting them to trunk or treat. These are things that we're very much about here, but you're not a missionary when you do that. Our church is engaged in um, the, the Bless Every Home initiative. Chris has talked about this a lot, where you get an email every day and it tells you who to pray for in your neighborhood. Uh, praying for your neighbors is not missionary work. You need to know that. It's good. You should pray for your neighbors. It's a good Christian thing to do, but you should also, once you get done praying for them over the course of two or three weeks, actually go and knock on their door and share Jesus with them. That's missionary work. And you can do it any day of the week at any time. The Lord calls us to the Great Commission. This is what missionary work means. It means proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming, preaching the truth of God's word. Because missions are carried out not by acts of service, not by invitations to fun events, but confident proclamation of the gospel. Now, what if you don't know how to share the gospel? Well, then you need to learn. <laughs> That's not an excuse. We're very fortunate here. We have uh, an elder and, and apologist in residence, Michael Lewis, who uh, has several uh, classes throughout the year that teach you how to share the gospel in almost any context. Michael is extremely gifted in this capacity. If you don't know how to share the gospel, if I, what I'm saying is making you uncomfortable, like I don't even know the first thing I would say to somebody, sign up for that group the next time it's offered and learn and, and go out on a limb and just see what happens. What's the worst thing that's gonna happen? Okay, so you might have a physical altercation. I mean, I'm just being honest, right? <laughs> but, but only if you're like really aggressive. So don't, maybe don't be aggressive and it'll be great, I promise. We'll pray for you. It means... As a missionary, when we say missions, what we mean is being directed by the Holy Spirit through concentrated prayer. We mean confidently proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sometimes, as I just mentioned, it upsets people. And that brings us to our third point. Missions often include confrontational discernment. Confrontational discernment. Keep reading verses six through seven. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius Paulus, it says, is a proconsul, which is a word that means like a head of government in a senatorial province. Uh, it says he was an intelligent man, uh, and he wanted to hear the word of God. I mean, this is like the missionary's dream, isn't it? I'm being invited to come and proclaim the gospel. What an easy thing. Uh, it says that he has invited Paul and Barnabas to come and share the gospel. But he's accompanied by a man named Bar-Jesus, which is a word that means son of Jesus or son of Joshua, which is a very common name during that time. He's also referred to as Elimaz in verse 8. We'll get there in a moment. But notice he's also described as a magician. 
and a Jewish false prophet. Two things you don't want to be called, right? In other words, he is someone who practices divinations and he attributes whatever it is that he is able to deceive people that he is able to do to the power of God, which is very clearly wrong. God forbids magic and divinations all throughout the Old Testament. Continue in verse eight. It says, but Elamaz, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Sergius Paulus invites them to come and preach and teach the word of God to him. Elamaz does not like this plan, and so he attempts to oppose them. He's like, I'm going to get in the way of these people. I want to make sure that my guy doesn't come to Christ, because he's going to be a Christian, and he's going to blow my entire operation here, right? Look at verse 9 through 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, this is the first time he's called Paul, by the way, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, And he said, brother, I'm going to pray for you in the spirit of mercy. No. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Not very pastoral, Paul, is it? Verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. I just think it's ironic that Paul's like, finally payback. <laughs> right? The Lord blinded me and now I get to give it away. It says, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Paul went to proclaim the gospel, but sometimes people don't want that to happen. Missions require you then to not only confidently preach the gospel, but to to discern those who are among you and confront them in their error when they become antagonistic. Now bear in mind, Paul is an apostle. As an apostle, he can do things that we cannot do right? He has apostolic power and apostolic authority and office that we believe was closed at the end of the apostolic age. So as you go about proclaiming the gospel, and almost certainly people will oppose you at some point or another, you need to not expect to be able to blind them, okay? Very important. You should expect, however, to oppose them back. What is it that uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And listen, defending the faith with the word of God, it might not be as exciting as blinding someone by the spirit of God, but let me tell you, it's far more powerful. It's far more powerful. Look at verse 12, you'll see what I mean. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Now, hold on a minute. That sounds like he believed when he saw the miracle. But keep reading. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What was he astonished at? Teaching. This is so important. You've got to get this. It is always the gospel that saves. It is always the gospel, the word of God that leads to salvation. It's not the spiritual gifts. It's not healing. It's not exorcisms. It's not prophesying. Those are all things that we love to emphasize because who do they make look awesome? Me. Those things do not save. Only the gospel saves. The proconsul believed because of the teaching he heard, not the miracle he witnessed. 
It's the word of God that always leads to faith, not the miracle. That's what Romans 10, 14, and 15 says. He's talking about unsaved people here, people that missionaries are going after. And he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without miracles? No, he says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Salvation comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, not through miracles, not through supernatural events. There's a point of these in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. But when you evaluate where they occur, they don't lead to salvation. The gospel does. Missions are not a science. I hope you're getting that. I hope you're seeing this clearly in Acts 13. It's not a result of good planning and execution, although good planning and execution is a good thing, but it's not a result of that. It's not acts of service. It's not invitations to fun events. Again, things that are great. We should do those as Christians. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not healing people. It's not casting out demons. Missions are directed by the Spirit of God. They're carried out by proclaiming the Word of God while confronting people in their sin through the gospel of God. If it isn't led by the Spirit, centered on the Word, focused on the gospel, folks, it's not missions. It's not a missionary work. It must be those things. And if it isn't those things, it's counterfeit. It will not save. It will not last. Here's what I want to do this morning. Missions... Being a missionary in a formal sense, I think we're all missionaries in an informal sense, but in a formal sense, what I mean by that is that God puts a call on your life to sell your stuff and move and go be a missionary somewhere. That kind of missionary effort is not something that we talk about on a like week to week basis. We talk about it when it comes up out of the text, but, but really we're just about preaching the gospel and informing you and forming you to scripture. But with that being said, God calls people from the church to be missionaries. Janelle Hanna, Mike Richard, Janelle Richard now, they're married, called to the mission field. Janelle's parents, the Hanna family, called to the mission field. They have committed their lives to that because the call of God has been put on them to go and do that. Some of you right now in this room are called to that kind of missionary work. More than likely. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that prophetically. I'm, I'm saying like the odds are that that's true and, and you're not even aware of it because maybe you've never even considered that God is calling you to that. And so what I want to do is I want to close our time here this morning. I want to give you just a, maybe a minute to pray, to begin praying. And I want you to ask God, this is a bit, and this is, listen, this takes courage because you might not like what he says. I want you to ask God, God, have you put a call in my life to be a missionary? And if so, to where? And to what kind of mission? And if you feel like God is like, you know what? I, I really think this is who I am. Then I want you to come and talk to us. And we want to begin praying with you about that. We want to begin thinking through that. Is the Lord really moving you into that kind of missionary effort? And if so, how can we as a church support you and love you through that process to get you to that place? To not stand in the way of the Holy Spirit but simply to celebrate what he's doing in your life. I'm going to ask you to pray, and, and then I'll close us out here in a moment.
Most gracious God, we confess that you are alive and that you put callings upon your people to do various things. And God, we wanna be a church submitted to your leadership, not our own. Sometimes that means making decisions and, and moving in directions that uh, we would never choose on our own. And yet the calling when it comes upon our life for whatever it is to which you're calling us is so evident that that is what we are supposed to do. And so God, would you just very clearly impress upon your people today who you desire to see go and do mission work, whatever capacity that looks like. Would you awaken in them the hunger to serve you in the way that they were created to serve you, to utilize the gifts that you've given them, not for their own glory, but for the glory of your son, Jesus. And would you give us wisdom as leaders in this church to know when you've called someone into where you've called them, that we might not get in the way. We submit ourselves to you, God. We want to be directed by your spirit. We want to be formed by your word. And we want to see others saved by your gospel. Thank you for the witness of these early church missionaries, the way in which that you worked through them. Pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We will begin next week with uh, week two. Hope to see you there.